So before we um, begin together, I'd like to just say a little bit more about um, Surya. Surya Das went to uh, India, I guess, the end of the 60s, beginning of the 70s, and um, spent time with a variety of very um, well-known, respected Indian teachers, doing all kinds of practices and ended up um, in particular studying in the Tibetan tradition um, for quite a long time and then he did the traditional Tibetan three-year training retreat um, three years three months and three days is this is this ringing too much just a tiny bit okay. he did the Tibet traditional Tibetan training retreat three years three months and three days and then, I don't know, I guess he didn't do it correctly or something because he decided to do it over again. He did two of them in a row. Maybe they failed him or something like that. I don't know. No, I think he wanted to be a real llama. In the first one, he was only a half-baked llama. But then he came out fully cooked. Um, and since that time, he's been back in the West, or at least some, somewhat since that time. And a couple years ago came out with a best-selling book, Awakening the Buddha Within, and then has a new book that's coming out later this year, Awakening to the Sacred, Creating a Spiritual Life from Scratch. Um, I don't know what that means, like an apple pie from scratch or something. What does it mean? Right, first you have to create a universe, right? Is that really from scratch? And imagine all that. <laughs> this is your night, Jack. Enjoy yeah. it. Thank you. I appreciate it. And, and what, uh, what we talked about as a possible topic for the evening was um, uh, somewhat based on this, on this new book and um, to, to dialogue together and talk and also invite some questions about um, developing, maintaining, um, or being nourished by a spiritual practice that's really integrated in one's life. Um, and I thought I would read one short thing and then see what Surya has to say to begin from this. Um, I'm a lifelong and natural mystic, this, this man writes. I have known the direct experience of God countless times in a sunrise, in music, in children's laughter. But what is it like to be a mystic in this world? In part, it is sad. Mystics can go through a long period in which they have experiences of the divine, but they remain unsure. Once, after I gave a talk in a church, an old woman waited till the crowd of people who came up to me cleared, and I saw that she was ill and not much longer for this world. And acting circumspectly, she recited a dream in which an amazing golden sun came to her and asked if that was God. And first I thought of my standard reply, kind of Jungian, well, we need to get into the dream and see what the symbols mean to you. But then I was struck by the impact of the situation. This old woman is dying, and it matters very much to her if she met God even once in this life. And so I looked at her and I said, yes, it was God, and we both broke into tears. But how sad, for she had the marks of a holy person, a spiritual person, whose life was somehow embedded in the sacred, and yet she asked desperately if she has found the sacred even once in her life. To me, she represents most of us in this culture who are lost not from the sacred, but from understanding our connection to it. Is that a good preface? That's beautiful. I'll give you the quote, the reference later. Yeah. 
So I think the question is, since we are immersed in the sacred, obviously it's here or nowhere. If it's everywhere, it must be here too. Then what is it that we need to do to connect to it or to recognize our connection to it, to the sacred, whether we call it God or the divine or freedom and liberation, as we call it in Buddhism. And I've been thinking a lot about this lately, especially talking more in the West and, in, I mean, in the Occident, in America and so on. It's very important for us to talk in English. And therefore, even as Buddhists, I think it's relevant to use words like God or the divine sometimes, since that represents the ultimate to us. And Buddhism sometimes sound, makes it sound a little negative by talking about as emptiness or not-self or nirvana mistranslated for years as extinction. I think we need to look at the positive aspects of it, not just emptiness, but the infinite or openness, which is very much like God and the sacred, and it's here or nowhere. So I've been thinking lately about this. What is a practice that we could do today to really connect to the sacred or to recognize and affirm our connection to it? And I've been thinking a lot about this, Jack, lately, especially with the myriad of practices that we can find in Buddhism, not to mention in other traditions that we might choose to use. And there's one special one in the Tibetan tradition that I don't find so much in the other Buddhist traditions, although, you know, we could see it in essence. And it's called the practice of Daknang, or pure perceptions, or Trungpa Rinpoche called sacred outlook. Seeing the Buddha in everyone and everything. Seeing the light to make it less Buddhist and Buddhism alone seeming. Seeing the, recognizing the light in everyone and everything. That's a practice for today. We can practice that on the meditation cushion with whatever arises in our moment-to-moment -moment experiences. And we can also carry it on in life without crossing our legs or closing our eyes. A practice where we can really connect with the spirit wherever we are today in our relationships, in our workplace, with our colleagues, even with our difficult boss or whatever difficult situations we're in. And I really recommend this in terms of how to bring a recognition of the perfection or the natural sacredness of everything into daily life through seeing the Buddha or the perfection, the, uh, the light in everyone and everything. And if we don't feel it, if we feel miserable or separate, right then we could look and see, well, where is it right now? Not just think about it, but sort of feel it, like tune in and say, well, is it not this? May, why isn't it this too? Perhaps it is. Just open our minds to the possibility that this is it right now, that I am it. As a poet said, I am it and you are it and this is it right now. What do you think about that, Jack? Is that something that you practice in your tradition? <laughs> One of, the, one of the practices that I've um, done is, is a little bit like that, a practice in which um, you see every single being in the world as enlightened except for one, yeah. <laughs> which is um, to say that everybody else is a Buddha and they're all doing exactly the perfect things necessary for you, the last unenlightened one, <laughs> to, to develop perfect patience, right? perfect compassion, perfect forgiveness. They're all giving you the exact lessons that you need, Buddhas, that they are, so that you too can join them in Buddhahood. That's one practice I've done. Is that related? Well, <laughs> did it work? Yeah, actually, it's pretty good. I like it. <laughs> um, actually, uh, uh, another, another related way of, um, for myself of finding a language for that. I mean, it's not for everyone, but I've talked about it in here um, uh, over a number of times, is the practice of bowing. And it's not necessarily a literal bowing of one's body, although that's an interesting thing. And in fact, if you go into certain great Zen monasteries, these wonderful old temples in Japan, or certain holy Islamic shrines or Hindu temples, 
there are these tiny little doors to get in. Little tiny doors. And the only way you can get in is to stoop way down before you can enter into the sacred space, which is in a way an archetypal um, enactment of letting go of um, being something in particular so that you're receptive to that sacred that's there. And in that way, I see the practice of awareness that we do here as bowing to what arises, Sun Buddha, Moon Buddha, Sad Buddha, Happy Buddha, when you're lost, as you said, or you don't feel like you're in touch with that, to bow to that and just see this is um, the state of Buddha at this moment. So I don't know, does that sound like the same thing? Yeah, it does. Yeah. So I've been thinking a lot, Jack, lately that um, although we all need to meditate more and be more mindful, that actually it's the other 23 hours, or 23 and a half hours of the day that needs <laughs> emphasis. So I've been uh, teaching a, as a kind of training program, unlike the three-year cloistered retreat that I went through, that in, for purposes of integrating in daily life today, which I think is really where the rubber meets the road on the spiritual path for us lay people in America, except for our retreats and formal um, meditation sessions, let's say in the mornings or on the weekend, is that there are a few areas of our life to work on. And I've isolated six of them for a purpose of well-rounded spiritual life. But actually, if we pick up any one of them, I think it will transform our life. And that is, and I call them the six building blocks of a spiritual life. That's partly the basis of this book, Creating a Spiritual Life from Scratch, meaning creating your own practice with the materials you already have at hand, basically. And one is to have a spiritual practice, a formal practice, like meditation or prayer or yoga or self-inquiry every morning, Tai Chi, every morning or whenever you get to it, personal practice, daily practice. And second, some form of study or reading or reflection or listening to teachings. And third, some form of working on oneself that's not just explicitly religious, like psychotherapy, men's and women's groups, exercise, introspection, creative arts, whatever. Twelve step. Twelve step. <laughs> exactly. American Dharma. Like, mm-hmm. That's right. Buddhism is an eight step program to recover your true nature. <laughs> As in the Eightfold Path. So I forgot how many I mentioned, but a few other things. Two more. Two more. (laughs) I think three more. Three more. Retreats and workshops, intensives, to charge it up and go deeper every season or every year. Um, Fifth, some kind of teacher contact or contact with elders or experienced friends on the path to help guide us and save us the trouble and clarify things for us. And last and not least, some kind of giving back, service, sangha-making, altruism, social activism. I think if any of us did all of these, that we would get the complete curriculum that's taught in the most traditional training centers in the East or anywhere ever. And even to just pick up one of these, or one and a half in our daily day-to-day lives, would be truly transformative. And make our lives, we recognize the sacredness of life, and then really learn to love ourselves and each other and love and cherish life in all its forms much better. Someone gave me a cartoon during the break which, in which there are two kind of ticket dispensers and you can sign up for which of the two tickets you like. One of, the, one of them says, true joy, and there's no line in front of it. And the other says, superficial pleasures you'll live to regret. <laughs> And there's a thousand people all <laughs> taking the ticket. <laughs> um, I want to amplify that, but also take it a little different um, direction in some way. Um, there are ways as well as people enter a spiritual path where we become compartmentalized. Um, And that's really what you're speaking about. And you think, well, meditation will do it, or yoga and tai chi, somehow bodily transformation will do it, or prayer will do it, or or service will do it, and and leave those other dimensions untouched, um, or some part of ourself untouched. Um, 
so one part is one danger is compartmentalization. A second danger that's related to it um, is regarding the spiritual path as what Alan Watts called a grim duty. You know <laughs> that it's kind of this this endless self-improvement project that you have to do because you're not a worthy person basically, and if you did enough and served enough and meditated enough and jogged enough and did enough therapy and so forth, you'd become finally a decent person or something like that. Um, and with that, um, traditionally in, in many spiritual, uh, um, spiritual uh, forms of practice, whether it's Buddhist or Christian or Jewish and so forth, there is a quality of um, life denying or saying that the world is really a dangerous place or the body's dangerous um, or the marketplace is dangerous, go and live in a cloister or a monastery. And just as you've been writing about um, creating a spiritual life from scratch with those kind of principles, I'm finishing up a book finally I've been working on for quite a while called After the Ecstasy, the Laundry. Um, <laughs> And it's stories. Does that, mean, does that mean after you get enlightened, somebody will always do your laundry? That's right. That's it. And in part, it's. <laughs> oh, I know. It means you won't make dirty anymore. Go ahead, Jack. It's your night. Enjoy. <laughs> Thank you, Surya. <laughs> Part of what I did was to go around and interview people who had done 20 or 30 or 40 years of spiritual practice and who became lamas. So I interviewed Surya as one of a hundred different people, or, or Western Zen masters, or swamis, or or rabbis and, and uh, abbots and abbesses of various Christian contemplative monasteries um, about how their spiritual life had unfolded. And part of it were, were really wonderful stories of um, learning the kind of pieces that you talk about, of awakening, remembering the sacred in one another, um, realizing um, that service was as much a part of path as prayer or meditation and so forth. But some of them also were the awakening stories after awakening. That is, people had some mystical or, or deep understanding, and then they realized, which is true for all of us, that there was something left out. So one chapter I'm writing about the body, and this is a spiritual teacher who had a serious bout with cancer. She says, a large abdominal tumor was removed, and with it all that I had clung to as certainty in my life. I quit work, I quit spiritual teaching, I did the whole alternative route from acupuncture to depth therapy. That was 15 years ago, and I can say it was the biggest turning point and awakening of all. I had used my body, now I had to inhabit it, respect it, love it with all the feminine force and nurturing and understanding I had withdrawn into my spiritual life. Keeping my heart in my body became my practice, and it's become glorious. Even the first mystical awakenings into perfection did not come close to showing me the joy of living embodied in the senses in each moment. I love life in a new way now, and this has become the place of freedom. So that's one example. I'll give another one, if I can. This is a interview with a, a friend who became the abbot of uh, a number of Buddhist monasteries, a Westerner. And he said, when I was first an abbot, I didn't really know what I was doing, nor how I was supposed to act. So I tried to be just like my teacher. And because I admired him so much, I tried to run the monastery in just the way that he did. <laughs> but it didn't work. It was a disaster because I'm not him. And then I realized that what people admired in him was that he was just himself. And so I discovered, although it took me a number of years, that that's what I had to do. I had to become myself. So it's these kinds of stories in which people 
have undertaken a spiritual practice, have started yoga and meditation maybe over a long period of time, and then begin to fill out that mandala that you describe of those different parts and realize this too, the body, the emotions, um, service to others, um, uh, thoughtfulness, reflection, study, all those can be a part of it. So how, how can we be more ourselves? It's kind of a paradox, isn't it, how to become what we are? And yet that's what I think the Buddhist path addresses very eloquently. It provides access to that kind of authenticity and genuineness. Not that we have to find some, follow somebody else's dogma. Buddhism is not about believing, it's about discovery. We don't have to convert, there's no dogma, nothing, nothing we have to believe in Buddhism, everything to discover for ourselves. I th but I think it is a paradox how to become what we are. And also, it may not be as far away as we think. So if we apply ourselves to that right now, that's what Buddhism talks about in the discussion about the nature of self and not self, or to speak English, the question of identity. Who is experiencing my experience right now? If we bring it to right here and now through some kind of self-inquiry, or as we call it in our Dzogchen tradition, uh, the Ruchen, or discernment, subtle discernment. What's the difference between our ego and our higher or wisest self or our true nature? Who is experiencing our experience right now? Who is hearing these words? Who or what, I should say, is hearing these words? Who do we think we are? Are we who we think we are? If we look into that, I think we might surprise ourselves. We might even find something glorious and magnificent, not in an egotistical sense, but in a universal sense, something that we could find in anyone and everything. So I think this is also a very important practice for us today, very congruent with our Western way of thinking, also our psychological and philosophical, scientific way of analyzing things with our intellect, not just trying to meditate and stop thinking, but to use our intellectual tools also for spiritual purposes, and to look into who and what we really are, and contempl contemplatively, not just analyzing it through many chains of discursive thinking, that's one avenue, but also in the present moment, just see if you can intuit right now even, who is hearing these words? Where is, is this hearing taking place? In the head, or in the heart, in the body, in the mind? Can you perceive the perceiver? Can you? Can you? I asked you first. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I don't know the answer. I don't either. <laughs> Does anyone? Can anyone answer that? Who am I question? Yes? I can't answer that. That's a good answer. Yeah. But, but. <laughs> <laughs> now you're in trouble. Go ahead. <laughs> Western society that people are worried about who they are and have the luxury to even think about it, whereas in other societies people are just are because they're just doing what they're doing. I don't know. I've lived in other societies and I think uh, we may have an, uh, just an outsider's view of what they're really doing because to their point of view we're just doing what we're doing and we don't have many problems. Have you lived in other societies? Yeah, yeah. I lived in Guatemala. Yeah. Well, certainly, um, we in the, 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 the first world do have a lot more leisure time for our, you know, our own preoccupations. We don't have to pound the earth seven days a week to try to grow something, most of us. But still, I think that uh, around the world we share many of these same issues. I really do. I don't want to take, go away from the question of who's listening, who's present, who's here, but maybe to amplify another side of it. Um, the process of opening to our Buddha nature, our true nature, to that place of wholeness and ease and peace and rest that is who we really are, that is our birthright, in one way, uh, there is an avenue of inquiry, of looking, who am I? A second equally important dimension of that opening to discover is compassion. 
because in many, many cases we've taken ourselves to be unworthy, um, wounded, um, insecure. We have all these kinds of stories. Um, and sometimes you can just bypass the stories and say, well, who's telling that story? That's one way to go. But in another way, sometimes when you start to um, turn toward yourself or toward the world and really open your eyes, you see how much suffering there is, um, how much fear. It's sometimes called the body of fear. And if you approach that, um, trying to get through it, I'm going to find out who I really am, with any uh, agenda or aggression or buying in, even in a subtle way, to thinking, well, what I am now isn't okay, but I'm going to get to something better, you miss the mark, you, you lose it. <coughs> a couple of short things. A sentence from Voltaire. The art of medicine consists primarily of amusing the patient <laughs> while nature cures the disease. <laughs> There it's kind is of like Dharma teaching. Exactly. <laughs> I thought the same. And all of spiritual practice, in a certain way, is amusing the audience until all of a sudden they wake up and say, Hey, the Buddha, I thought he was up there. And that was really a mistake. You know? That was really a joke. <laughs> That's right. Um, and but isn't it true, also, the point of practice is really personal, intimate, so... Um, I think of it as myself as really that it sort of lightens me up. And that lightens up my perceptions and my world. Yes. So we lighten up and as well as enlighten up and don't take ourselves so seriously. And then there's sort of an unexpected sense of acceptance or gentleness or kindness that comes in that, comes through that levity. The poems of Ryokan, who's the most beloved of all Japanese poets, and 1700 Zen master. Um, part of what makes them so uh, delicious for anyone who loves poetry or the human spirit is because Zen master or not, he just puts out in a moment what he sees and what he senses, what he feels without judgment about it. Um, the vicissitudes of this world are like the movements of clouds. Fifty years of life, nothing but a long dream Sparse rain in my lonely hermitage at night, I clutch my robe and lean against the empty window. So he has a whole set of poems about loneliness and ones about longing, and then a whole series of poems of playing with the children, and then some of trying to study things and then putting his books down and looking at the plum tree and saying, what better text is there than the plum tree outside my window? Um, but you'd think, well, a Zen master shouldn't be lonely. <coughs> but he was. Anybody here not lonely sometimes? <laughs> Raise your hand. Yes? Sometimes I'm not. <laughs> oh. <laughs> we have a place for you up here. <laughs> well done. <laughs> That's like when I asked one night, we were talking about how much everything changes. And I said, does anyone have an experience of something that doesn't change? And they said, yeah, delusion. It's always here. <laughs> Confusion. So what did you ask? You had some question there before I went off on... Should we entertain some questions from the Sunday? Sure we could. We could certainly entertain questions. Switch the entertainment, please. <laughs> you mentioned compassion, and I'm wondering the, uh, the place uh, and or the difference between fabricated and unfabricated compassion. Well, those words fabricated and unfabricated, um, I've heard or studied primarily as a language to translate things in Vajrayana teachings, not so much in um, the language of Theravada tradition. Um, but there's something close to it. Uh, there is in, um, in, the awake, in the description of awakening in Theravada tradition, there is um, something called Adi Sila, Adi Samadhi, and Adi Panya. Panya means wisdom, it's prajna. Um, and that means um, the inherent or natural or uncreated wisdom. Um, 
Uh, and um, part of that then, Adi <laughs> compassion, would be the compassion that's not created by thinking of another being, the, the kind of relative level of oh, this other person, they're suffering and they're like me. Um, and that generates a sense of connection, but rather from a very deep place of stillness, recognizing that we are that person, that we are everything, that it's really the truth, it's the reality. I'll tell you a story. A friend of mine is a hospice director in Seattle, who was also a Buddhist monk for a long time. And one morning, a couple of um, sort of young adults came into his room and said, we need to talk to you. Our father is here. He's dying. They knew, you know, he knew them. Um, and um, we just found out last night that our father's youngest brother was killed in a car accident. And we don't know whether to go in and tell him because he's lying there very near death and whether that would disturb his dying process. Or maybe we should just let him die in peace. And they decided not to tell him. And then they walked into the room, hospice director, my friend, and they together and sat down. How are you, Dad? And he was very, very ill, close to death. And after a little while, he said, don't you have something to tell me? <laughs> I said, what do you mean? And he said, my brother, he died. And they said, well, how, how do you know? And he said, oh, I've been talking to him. <laughs> And then a little while later, he said his last things to his children, and he died. So there's a level of compassion which feels for this, in a genuine resonance or sympathy for the suffering or of another. And then there's another reality that is also the truth of who we are, that simply we aren't separate. I don't know if that answers your question. Um, the reason I ask um, the comment about social activism, I'm wondering if there's... Um, a danger in the in the relative fabricated compassion. This is this is a better question for Surya because th those are languages about fabricated and relative that tend not to be so much in this tradition. But you guys talk about that all the time, right? Yeah. Well, I think this is uh, really a discussion about what is authentic and what is what is contrived or what is um, pretense. But we shouldn't let that discussion uh, paralyze us until we're perfect and have perfect unmixed motivation. We don't have to wait until we're perfectly enlightened in order to be, help or give a kind word or some advice to a younger one or anything like that. But to be straight with ourselves to know the difference between what's called for and needed, for which genuine compassion naturally responds, and what's fabricated, like when you always have to do good, laying your trip on any people, which is, which is not, we wouldn't call that compassion then, you know, it's something else. So compassion and wisdom always have to go together. It's said in the Mahayana text that compassion without wisdom is blind. But wisdom without compassion is sterile. So if we fabricate good deeds, like to, to be seen as good or to, you know, assure our place in heaven. That's fine, because that's a mixed motivation. That's where we are. At least we're doing good deeds rather than being a pathological, you know, serial killer or some, you know, crazy person. I mean, just to exaggerate the point. But it doesn't mean we have to be perfect before we can act well. But still, it's important, I think, to work on also the angle of truth and genuous and very personally being honest and authentically true to ourselves and what we know is, uh, is, is, is just or in the sense of compassion or love, love from the heart, not love through, from the head. Like we all have, know from Sunday school the, uh, to, to treat others as we would be treated and to love thy neighbor as thyself. But, so we try to do it, but we try through the head. It is the heart trying through the head. I think we can help balance that by doing it from the head through the heart a little more. And then it will come much more naturally and spontaneously. That's then unfabricated compassion. But we shouldn't idealize that and wait till that day when we are just like Jesus or Buddha in order to be generous or helpful or kind. Just let me add one piece. This is from Joanna Macy who I respect a lot, who, who really wrestles with the question of how to wed these together. 
And she says, even the best, even our scientists can see that there's no scientific or technological fix. No amount of computers, no magic bullet can save us from population explosion, deforestation, climate disruption, poison by pollution, or the extinction of plant and animal species in a wholesale way. These are things that we carry in us that we know are happening. We are going to have to want different things, to seek different pleasures, to pursue different goals than those that have been driving us and the global economy. And it points to a revolution that's not just a revolution in the things of the world, but really a revolution in the heart. And they're not separate. They're somehow really connected. Um, and I'm aware, just say one more thing, um, spoke, speaking to someone in the break, that we're about to go and bomb Kosovo. Mm. Or it's very likely anyway. Um, and no matter what you think and kind of what your sense of politics about it, you know innocent people are going to die. And that bombing is a, is a terrible thing to do. I mean, if you can imagine being on the other end of a country that's being bombed for whatever reason, if you have a horrible leader, as they happen to, who is, you know, a psychopath in certain ways. Um, and I think, again, without trying to find the perfect solution, because I don't know what the solution is, <coughs> I'm really aware of that about to happen and feel it, and feel the need for concern and prayer or whatever your practice is. Robin? Yeah, um... One day I was reciting the sutra and all of a sudden I, I started questioning whether or not I believed it and it was the line, all beings from the very beginning are Buddhas. And I go, this is in the sutras, this, this must be true. And it sort of goes along with the Zen koan, um, you know, do dogs have Buddha nature? And it was sort of, I went home with it and it sort of like became the koan. Do husbands have Buddha nature? <laughs> and it was it was really <laughs> it was a really real question because um, you know the answer to that koan too. Yeah, don't you? Yes, I do, and, yeah. I, and I discovered it that that evening because um, you know there's such a thing as midlife crisis, and I was actually losing my husband this year, and. Um, sitting um, with that open heart, I really went home and, and was present with my husband with the belief that I really believe in the Dharma and that the Dharma wouldn't lie. And if they said that all beings are Buddhas, my husband was one. And I met him in, in that experience and had a profound experience of my relative husband with all of his frailties being Buddha. And I stayed with that experience for many minutes. And what happened, unasked for, was the experience that this very being was also Buddha, an imperfect, uh, flawed. And I am with you on this one. I don't think we can wait for enlightenment because our lives are too short. It's, it's really uh, right here, right now, as we are, it, or not. And um, I, that's my response. It's both very heartfelt and also I have to thank you on behalf of the husbands of the room. <laughs> My wife has raised the same. <laughs> Siri, on the but other did hand, she come who up doesn't? With the same answer? Right, I don't know. <laughs> Siri, on the other hand, has a dog, so I don't know. Does your dog have? A dog? <laughs> He has a wonderful, what's your dog's name, Chandi? Chandi. Chandi. Yes. Chandi definitely has Buddha nature. <laughs> Other questions, please. I, I have a question uh, regarding the more uh, poisonous nature of like impulsive anger arising and um, how to work with that. I mean, I know how to deal with it intellectually, also from, from the Buddhist way, but it's, it's a very strong energy and I deal with that a lot. And then, you know, I have to deal with the reactions too. And I'm, I'm what makes you ask? Is it your own anger you're yeah, talking about? Yeah, my own impulse. I mean, it's an energy. I get angry very quickly. Mm. 
And uh, in one way, I like the energy of it. But then on the other side, I don't like the results. Lama. Well, as you like to quote from scripture, I'll also quote from my lineage. And my grandmother Rose used to say, Jeffrey, count to ten before you hit back. <laughs> and that folk wisdom is very relevant to why we practice mindfulness and awareness, or for that matter, even more basically like vows, practice, not to harm, not to kill, not to lie. So we gather mindfulness, we pra cultivate mindfulness in the present moment, so we have room to count, if not to ten, to one or two or three, rather than just knee-jerk response. In what you call the impulsive anger and violence. I don't think anger is the problem, actually. Anger is just an energy. As you said, it has positive and negative sides. Anger arises if we don't suppress it, and we need not suppress it. We can just experience it and then have more awareness about that. There's a lot of mind moments in that, more than 10, before we act it out, in which we can choose how to act it out. Maybe act it out by splashing paint on a canvas rather than acting it out by hitting or, or for that matter, um, hurting ourselves with our bad habits impulsively. Let me add a couple of things to that, if I may. Um, many of the things that we're talking about are really questions about what the Buddha called the middle path. And I don't mean it in a simplistic way. It was the most profound of all the Buddhist teachings, the middle path. Um, between relative and absolute, or, or self and other, or service and not, or what to do with anger, that there is a reality, there is a place to rest, to come to, which includes all of the energies of life, and in which there's freedom. Now, what I mean very specifically, I don't want to get too philosophical about it. If you are someone like myself, I, I grew up in a family with a very violent and paranoid and abusive father, um, the, the way I dealt with it was to stuff my anger. I wasn't going to be like him because he beat people and was, you know, terrible. And so for years and years, including in the monastery, I was a really good boy and a good monk, you know, until finally it came out. Years of stored rage. Um, and actually, I needed to practice getting angry. I didn't need to practice hurting people. That, you one doesn't want to do. But I was so frightened of it because of the violence around me that for me the balance was actually to begin to let it out and see that I could do it without hurting people. The other side, which is more what your question speaks to, is that that's already your practice. You know how to do that. And there's something interesting then to practice that's different than that, which Surya points to. And the, the example I'll give is I have um, a, a close friend, two close friends, um, who are in the middle of some great marital difficulties right now, speaking of husbands and wives. And the, the husband, the, the, the man and the couple, um, has a hair-trigger temper and gets angry a lot. And his wife does some other dance that's equally difficult and distressing. <laughs> but um, she said, I can't stand it anymore. It's too, I'm, I'm too much on edge. Or I say something and I get anger so much that I, we can't dialogue anymore. Um, and so he asked me for some suggestions of what he might do uh, to work with that. And we'd been part of a men's, young men's retreat recently together, and a whole lot of men gathered, where there was an African medicine man doing um, ritual with ash. And one of the things that he had experienced the African medicine man in his training as an elder, he went through an elder's initiation, was a practice called sealing your mouth. They actually made, this is maladoma, some they took ash and made a circle, the elders in his village, around his mouth three times, and then made him sit in the center of the village, and people could come and say anything they wanted, the most reviling things to him, and he had to sit there, and he was not allowed to open his mouth. So I said to my friend, if you want an interesting practice to maybe change the, change the energy in your marriage, seal your mouth just about anger um, so that neither the anger and judgment comes out, 
But there's a second part to it that was equally important, and that is then you need to express all the other feelings that are there beside the anger, which is hurt, uh, insecurity, fear, need, longing. And he's been doing it in their marriage for, uh, for a month or more now. And he called me and he said, it's amazing. He said, all this other stuff is coming out of me that was covered because my first habitual reaction so strongly is this one. You understand? So that if you, if you let go of that, which is a practice, then you begin to see what else is there that that's kept you from understanding and your freedom really will deepen from it. So, please. Along those same lines, I, I've been, uh, recently there's been a series of kind of catastrophes in my life, and I, and I, I should be angry. Mm. And I find that, you know, I, I'm, the longer I practice, the less ability I have to get angry. Mm. And, and intellectually, I think, well, I should really be angry about all this, and I can't. I don't know if I'm repressing uh, this, or you know, if I'm going to blow up in a month or something, or mm-hmm. or what. It just doesn't seem to get me. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the question, if you couldn't hear it in the back, is she's had a number of very difficult things happen in her life that she feels like that she should be angry about, but it's not coming. And, you know, has she been practicing too much? Will it come out later? (laughs) Will it get directed to her husband instead, you know, or something like that? Um, That's the question that she she poses. Um, I used to be able to get angry. mm -hmm. And I used to be able to get angry. I would accept this, you know, take it as it is, um, and pay attention to it. Because the idea isn't that you're supposed to do anything. You're actually more invited to pay attention, and you're in a new you're in new territory. As the person who sealed his mouth was in new territory, and new territory is always a little uncertain and difficult. But something is growing or new that's learned to be learned in it. So stay with it and see what happens. And maybe you you know you'll find some new way of being where there isn't as much anger, but you still take care of yourself. If you find you're not taking care of yourself, then that's another lesson. Anything you? No, I think we just have to be very honest with ourselves about what we're doing. We're, we're the ones that can know. Like I look into, uh, perhaps, I'm not getting angry, but um, am I still capable of having experiencing other emotions? You might find that you're just numb all over. But perhaps we're um, enriched in other aspects, so it's not, there's not um, anger right now. It'll probably come back in some form anyway, so don't worry. (laughs) But in our tradition, we say that the five poisons are also the five wisdoms. Like our sister over there said, she likes the energy of anger, and we could all laugh when somebody says that, but we we partly understand also that there really is something there. So in, in Tantric Buddhism, which discusses that even shadows are nothing but light, as emotional intelligence teaches us, that there's some logic or some use of the emotions, not just that they're negative or conflictual, afflictive. Anger has a very sharp and discriminating quality. It's very quick to see what's wrong, maybe the injustice in the world or how to fix things. And that's its useful part. That's not a destructive part. So we call that the nature of anger is really discriminating wisdom. It's discriminating. In the back, please. Um, wondered if you could uh, comment on, as a beginner in this process, if there's 
uh, some other way uh, to take it deeper, or just if I should just keep working with it? I mean, just a little, I guess I'm looking for a little more guidance. Yes, keep working with it. That's wonderful because what you're experiencing is, is absolutely true. The eye is a constriction. It is a constriction. You're contacting that constriction. You're plumbing. You're you're delving into that that and identity. It's like the atom. When we split the atom, there's a nuclear energy because all that energy is tied up in holding the atom together. Similarly, our ego. All of our energy, most of our energy, is tied up in holding our ego, our persona, and our trip together. And when we can crack that, even for an instant, as we see in different epiphanies in life. It's like an upsurge of infinite energy because it's all that energy that's in us, pure energy, is released. So please do, you know, keep on with that. And don't think of yourself as a beginner. As the Zen master said, beginner's mind is, is the practice. In the expert's mind, there are few new possibilities. For the beginner, everything is possible. So have a fresh look at it every time. And don't think, I'm just a beginner, I need to study Buddhist psychology so I can do this. Actually, that might create some intellectual obscurations and, false ex and, and sort of uh, concepts of what it should be. And again and again, in the moment, this is the contemplative aspect of the practice, in the moment, really look into, like right now, who or what is hearing or is feeling a pain or pleasure or is feeling impatient, you know, in traffic. You feel that impatience, you just look into it, you kind of drop into it. And right there is the middle way, as Jack was saying. Right there you could find the perfect rest point. Because pushing is not going to make the traffic go faster. So you could just drop into that, you can cut through right there the dualism. That there's you being obstructed from getting where you're going. By saying, who is hurrying? Who is feeling obstructed? And then just sit in your car seat and keep driving. That way you get there, but you're there every step of the way. I grew up in a country that had more bombs dropped than, than any other. That's Nazi Germany. In fact, I pretty much started thinking the night that a bomb dropped on our house. But it didn't go through the roof and it burned out in the backyard, but it shook the family up quite a bit. But um, this this question of, of bombing other countries and bombing other people, I know it's, it's incredibly troubling to everybody and it's incredibly troubling to me because we don't know what would have happened if. But I know that if all those bombs had been dropped, there's a possibility that right now I would be guarding you in a concentration camp. And I much prefer to be sitting with you here <laughs> But what I can't figure out is what I should be thankful for. Because I know in some way my freedom was bought with those bombs and the lives that were lost in the process. <laughs> yeah. And with, with your question really comes the moral pain of the world, how we let ourselves already get into the circumstance where it feels like there's no other way out but to commit violence against another person, even if they are, or another group, even if they are terrible in themselves. And you, you feel that there is no answer that doesn't create um, pain and anguish and suffering. And then you say, well, which is the right answer? Um, and this is really looking at the, we're looking at the human realm as we experience it without being philosophical about it. It's been so for a long time. And I don't have an answer for you either. Um, what I understand from the teachings is to act in the ways that minimize harm. Um, to seek as best you can um, 
the way uh, of care, of justice, of caring for people, of not allowing harm, um, to seek as best you can to do that without creating more suffering. And I don't know what the right thing to do is in, in such a... I mean, there's a part, you know, there's a part of me... We, we paid for all those, you know, pilots and planes and bombs and stuff, and Milosevic, um, even though he's been demonized a lot, I think he's been rightly demonized in many ways, um, has acted in really demonic or destructive ways that has resulted in the deaths of thousands of people innocently. And so there's one part of me that's saying, yeah, go bomb that guy. I can feel that. You understand, too. Um, it doesn't make me happy. There's nothing. It's suffering. And I don't know what the right answer is. I'll just say one more little thing. I heard the Dalai Lama, who, as you know, is such an exemplar of nonviolence, <laughs> Um, in the world as a Nobel laureate and such a, a great heart. Um, the situation in Tibet has become so terrible. The, the number of people in prison, um, the destruction of the religion, of the culture, the forced abortions of, of women so that Tibetans won't procreate, so the Chinese will, who've moved in will, just terrible things. The amount of torture and rape and um, there was a group of young Tibetans that wanted to get weapons and go in and try to fight, even though the Chinese army is millions of people and there aren't that many Tibetans, but they just wanted to do it. Um, and he said, no, of course, as the leader, he said, you shouldn't do it because my vows as a monk and my understanding of the path of compassion is no matter what happens, one doesn't do that. But then he said, I may be wrong, I'm not really sure, and maybe I should resign as Dalai Lama, he told this group, because I don't really know. This is all that I know. I could not do that. I couldn't ask someone to do that. But I'm not really sure, maybe I shouldn't be your leader. So you can feel the, the agony of that dilemma. Peace. I wonder if you could touch on the connection between spirituality and sexuality, particularly um, skillful means of using the sexual energy, maybe in, in service of spirituality. We have a tantric master here, so perhaps he can speak about that. Um, I, I actually, I want to read you one. One little passage, if I may, before we get the tantric um, teachings. If I can find it here. Oh, it's not in. I, I think I remember it sort of by heart. It's from Carl Jung, um, and he says uh, the erotic instinct um, will always be questionable, no matter what our society or laws say about it. You can't govern it or make laws or make rules about it. It's so powerful, you know, and when you get hit by the arrow, you know, even in the moment, all bets are off. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, it's something, isn't it? I mean, seriously. And he said, um, no matter what's said, um, and it only blossoms when our life is in harmony um, because one part of the erotic instinct, says Jung, is connected with this animal body that we have. We are born into an animal body. The other part is connected with the highest levels of spirit. And you know that um, through your own experience as well, which is why it is a part of sacred sexuality or Tantra and other, other such teachings. But it only blossoms when the two are in balance. Um, too much, um, let me see, oh yeah, too much of the animal nature, um, too much of just being lost in that, um, can lead to the destruction of what's, good, what's beautiful in us. But on the other hand, too much culture and spirit can make for a sick animal, right? 
and the two sides actually are there is a there's a coming together whether it's the dilemmas of compassion or the question of service and and inner purity there is a a need to bring together with some harmony the whole of our humanity and in that way sexuality is a central place central piece of practice how what do they teach you <laughs> and does it work <laughs> Um, I think it's time we have to end here, Jack. <laughs> but the Lama will be giving later lessons. Yes. In the back. <laughs> I think if the Buddha. Um, was alive today, he wouldn't just have the um, eightfold path, he would have a few extra folds or extra innings. Yeah. And the ninth would probably, uh, um, if you're familiar with Buddhism, the eight steps of the path are um, wise view, wise intentions, wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood, wise effort, wise mindfulness, and wise concentration. And I think that he would also add wise relationships. He would probably also add wise exercise, good humor, and a few other things. But especially for us today, mostly as lay practitioners, wise relationships, if our relationships are not part of our path, it's like if our work and our vocation is not part of our path, it's a big chunk out of our life that's deadening rather than enlivening. So I think we have to really go deep into the yoga of relationships and, and work spiritually that way. In the principles of Tantra, where everything is seen as grist for the mill or part of the path, then we try to recognize the sacredness of the pure energy, whether it's anger or passion, how passion can become compassion, how human love can be the tip of, recognizes the tip of the iceberg of divine love, not something different how it takes us beyond ourselves, how, how love and sex together can transport us beyond ourselves in the same way that some other spiritual practices can transport us beyond ourselves to an experience of some oneness or wholeness or the, the luminous void, great freedom. So I think it's very important for us not to cut off any part of ourselves neither outer or inner, neither our inner passions and emotions, nor our outer phases of our life, like family or workplace or relationships, and think that those are secular and uh, overemphasize the sublime and lose touch with the mundane or the secular, because then we'll get out of balance, as, as Jung said. And for this, we could look into ourselves and see what we know to be true for ourselves, how we can ourselves learn to be better lovers and find authenticity and non-pretending through that and a safe place to just let go and accept another and accept ourselves. These are all the same principles we practice in meditation. In a way, many of us practice them better in bed than we do in the prayer room because we've had more training and experience there and we've broken free from the authorities to some extent there or had more... more um, therapy about those things or some, something like that. So I think there's a good learning that we can take from there into the broader areas of our spiritual life about letting go, about go, the, the balance between going for it and letting go, about giving and receiving and so on. It's a very spiritual aspect of our lives. Of course, anything in excess can be an addiction, can be harmful, even the most beautiful things that we need to also recognize including going on too long at night. <laughs> Some people might want to leave. So we'll, we'll finish in the, in the next minute or two. Um, a couple more little things to say to that. Um, just as you say, you know, in tantric practice that the energies of life, whether it's passion or anger or and so forth, really have the seed of awakening in there included in that. Um, it is actually the fundamental practice of mindfulness or the kind of awareness and compassion that we train here, right? Wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood, wise relationship. Um, even the simplest basic practices of keeping precepts, the, 
the kind of first compassion practice is not to kill or steal or, or, or cause harm to other beings through the misuse of our words and deeds. Um, if you refine them, for example, the traditional precept of not to cause harm through the misuse of sexuality. That's, sexuality is a neutral energy and it can be associated with greed and aggression and um, domination in unskillful ways, exploitation. It can also be associated with intimacy and awakening and communion. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.